missionary when nobody's done this before. Um, for about 1,500 years, there had no, been no real missionary endeavors. You know, you had the apostles the first couple hundred years of the church. The, the, the gospel went out. But then for about 1,500 years, you'd have a monk or you'd have a priest. You'd have St. Patrick go to England or Ireland or whatever. You'd have these little isolated things. But you didn't have a, a missionary movement until, you know, the Moravians in the 1700s and then William Carey in 1792. So this is still, we're not very far into the modern missions. It feels normal to us to support missionaries, but this was not common we had the dark age, the dark time of the medieval period. The Catholic Church kind of controlled the church for that time period. The reformers, they reawakened the gospel, but they were so busy understanding the gospel and fighting their own issues at home that there wasn't much opportunity to think about, like, what can we take the gospel out to other places? And so it was about 200 years after the time of the reformers and the Puritans that they really started to get the missions out into the, the you know, Africa, Asia, South America, the Pacific Islands, and places like this. And so imagine how hard that is. They're not living in a multi-ethnic culture like we are today. It's, it's rare for them to see anybody who's not a white person and who doesn't generally function the same way that they do. And so there's, and there's, there's no Google, there's no National Geographic, there's nothing other than stories they might have heard from some sea traveler or something like that. So other than being driven completely by a, a conviction that we've got to get the gospel out, they're going sight unseen into strange territory. Everything's different tropical area with no medicine other than mercury and some other we know things are toxic today and um but they were driven by something inside and when i read these stories you know we joke about all that we live in an age when everybody's a snowflake we're all snowflakes when you (laughs) when you study these people's lives you realize just how pampered and soft we are and it's it's humbling to realize i mean these are these are like some of these Anne was a high society girl she was you know she didn't come from up poverty she wasn't used to roughing it in the wild she wasn't you know didn't go out camping on the weekends but they were she was driven by a conviction to get the gospel out and so keep that in mind that's why I love these biographies it just realizes how soft we've become in our air-conditioned you know climate-controlled you know comfortable age Uh, but they're no different inside than we were we are so if you want to go to that first slide there so Anne was born in Bradford Massachusetts um, in 1789, so George Washington is the, the, the president. He's into his first, present, first stage of his presidency at this stage. Uh, she's a girl who's always on the move. She loves parties, and this is her home there. You can still go. I think it's an apartment home to, house today. Um, they, they had a, a dance hall on their second floor, which I'm assuming, if nothing's changed, it's probably the upper part of the back house there. Um, so she, she was just, she loved, she was energetic, she loved adventure, she loved to just have fun. They said the only thing that could team her was books, were books, because she loved to read. And that's, other than that, she couldn't get her to settle down. She was just going from one party, one, one ball to another. Her father was a deacon, you can go to the next slide, her father was a deacon in the First Congregational Church, but even by this time period, the, the gospel has started to get diluted in, in the churches of New England. So although he's a deacon in the church, he's, the, the, the true gospel's not really there. Their pastor, Jonathan Allen, they said his life was not as solemn as his sermons. And he was one of the favorite uh, frequent uh, dance hall guests when, the, uh, when the, um, the Hasseltines would have parties and balls. So she learned how to be a Pharisee. Her, parent, her mother taught her, do good, don't lie, and you know, say your prayers twice a day. And she was afraid of hell, so she was very committed to her little self, self-righteous activity. And in the process of that, uh, she, that was what guided her early days. So she was a, a, good, a good kid. And that lasted until she got to Bradford Academy, which is within walking distance of her parents' house, um, where she really, she's 12 or 13 at this age, 
and then the, the balls, the parties, and all these things, uh, they really take over. Now, we shouldn't think of you know, drugs and all kinds of terrible things going on, but still there's a, there's a lightness, there's a, probably even some inappropriate uh, flirting and things like this that are just not generally godly, even in that time period. And it's taking her attention off of the serious things of life. And she found out that she got so excited, she had so much fun with the parties that, and the balls that she, she didn't say her prayers at night anymore. And she started to feel guilty for that for a while, but eventually she thought, you know, if I'm old enough to go to the balls and things like this, I don't need to be going to say my prayers twice a day. And she justified her, her, her lack of praying, which was self-righteous anyway, and eventually she just um, she stopped saying her prayers and didn't, didn't worry about it. And she said, for two or three years, I scarcely felt an anxious thought about the salvation of my soul, although I was rapidly heading towards eternal ruin. My disposition was carefree in the extreme. My situation in life gave me as many chances to indulge it as I could wish. I was surrounded with friends who were as wild and fickle as myself, and I often thought myself one of the happiest creatures on earth. So it's just life's great, life's good, life's fun. I'm in school, but there's lots of, lots of things to keep me busy. So on a Sunday morning in 1805, she's 14, getting dressed for church. She comes across a book by Hannah Moore, a well-known Christian writer in the, that time period. And she happened upon the lines, which just happened to be italicized, that says, she that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And that's a quote from 1 Timothy. And it struck her to the heart. She felt like for a moment, like God was in the room with her, like my eyes were supposed to see these words. And she was really affected by reading those words. Like, what are the chances that I read these words in this book on a Sunday morning? But she quickly reasoned her way out of it, as people under conviction tend to be able to do. But then a few Sundays later, she started to read Pilgrim's Progress, which has been an influential book throughout church history. And if you're familiar with the story, you know, Christian leaves the city of destruction, and he makes his way to the celestial city. And it's a narrative, it's a metaphor for the Christian life. Well, she is, she's reading this because she doesn't have a clear picture of the gospel. She says, well, Christian, she made, Christian made it to the celestial city, to heaven, because he stayed on the straight and narrow. So I better get back on the straight and narrow. And so she gets back into her legalistic mentality again. And she says, well, the only way I know how to do this, I'm never going to go to a party again. I'm never going to go to a ball again. That's the only way I can guarantee that I can get myself to heaven. Well, the very next day, she gets invited to a New Year's party. And she feels pretty good because she can resist. She's like, no, no, I've made this resolution. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to this thing. The next night, she got another invitation, but this is just for a small little get-together at somebody's house. She's like, well, it's not really a ball. I I, I can justify this. Well, she gets there, and it's a full-on ball. You know, it's full of people. And as soon as she saw the music and and there was the dancing and stuff, she just got swept into it, and all her resolutions went out the window. She got home that night, got another invitation. She said, "I'm, I'm going back. So for the next four months, it was just nothing but, you know, what am I going to wear, and what's the, what's the next event on my calendar? So she got completely absorbed again with the, the, the party scene, we could say. She says, I so, I so far surpassed my friends in gaiety and mirth that some of them were afraid that I had but short time to continue in my life of folly and would be suddenly cut off. So you just think, like, somebody living like this, they're so far out there that God's not going to let them continue like this for very long. And that's where she was. Her friends started to get worried. But uh, the next year, a revival came to Bradford. And she starts attending some meetings. Again, the gospel's not really clear because the, um, the pastors are saying, like, you need to seek deliverance. You need to seek deliverance. She's like, I better seek deliverance. But nobody's telling me how to find deliverance. So, again, they had, they had the, the, maybe like the Bible beater kind of pastor, you know, <laughs> repent and burn or something like that. But she's like, well, what do I do about this? How do I find salvation? And she didn't know what to do. Um, but she starts to lose her taste for the fun and for the parties, and she's not sure... Okay, you know, I've lost my appetite for my sin, but I don't know how to find salvation. 
but she wants to hide this from other people, and she said, I must obtain a new heart or I will perish forever. Fortunately, in God's providence, the, the headmaster of the academy did know the true gospel, and one Sunday night, he was explaining how the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts. And he said, you know what? Sometimes when somebody's under conviction, Satan will tempt you to hide your feelings and not let other people know that you're dealing with conviction of sin. You'll suppress those feelings. And she starts to feel guilty. She just runs out into the backyard and she starts crying because she realizes that that's where she's, what she's dealing with. A week later, she's supposed to go see some old friends, with a, go meet an old classmate with some friends of hers, and she's not in the mood to do that, but she can't tell anybody why she doesn't want to go meet her old friend. So she says, I've got to kind of find an excuse. I'll go, meet my, I'll, go find, go, I'll go visit my aunt, because she knew that her aunt had been influenced by this revival that was going on. And so her aunt's sitting there reading a little religious magazine, and her aunt says, she says, Anne, would you read me? Read out, read out loud to me while I'm doing my knitting or whatever. So Anne gets about two sentences in, and she just bursts into tears. And at that point, she says, I don't care what anybody thinks of where, who I am or what I am. I need help. And her aunt says, you know, if you're under conviction, don't trifle with that. Don't mess with that. Don't ignore that. Don't suppress that. Deal with that conviction. And then she feels like, well, if I ever let the sense of conviction go, it might never come back again. So she has to keep herself, and I know some people who've dealt with this. You know, if, if I let these feelings go... Maybe God will never save me. So she has to keep herself in this mentality of this, this heavy sense of the sense of my sin. So she goes back home. There's a party going on at home. She doesn't want to be rude, so she's going to stay and talk for a little bit. So she says hi to a couple people, but she said, you know, I've got to get to my room because I'm so afraid that this sense of conviction is going to pass and my opportunity will be lost. She visits the, the, the pastor again, the headmaster of the school, and he gives her some religious magazines, and she realizes that she doesn't know anything about the Bible. She says, I was as ignorant of true religion as someone in a land where the gospel had never gone. And as I see this and as we consider the time frame, there's so much of her story. I think this is an important part. So even if we don't get all the way through her life or we just have to hit some highlights later on, um, I'll point you to some resources. If this just whets your appetite for more, then so be it. But I'll just take my time where I really feel some important areas are her process of salvation and why maybe God brought her through such a difficult time. So she spends about two to three weeks in her room. She's about age 16 right now. She's wrestling with God like Jacob did. She's like, I'm not going to let God go until I find rest in my heart. But she said heaven seemed like iron, and she couldn't find peace. And then she started to get mad with God. She said, I want to be saved, but you seem to be ignoring me. You seem to be silent. And then as these feelings start to work in her heart, she starts to get very angry with God. She hates God's sovereignty and his holiness. And she's, basically, she wants salvation, and she wants a relationship with God, but she wants a relationship with the God that she is defining in her own mindset. She, God has to be good in the way that I think good is. God has to be loving in the way that I think love is. And it, it, as I look back at this, it seems like God was letting her see her true sinfulness and the fact that she was at enmity with him. I don't think that if, if God had saved her, you know, if she had that sense of peace and assurance right away, I don't believe that she would have had that strong sense of her depth, the depth of her sin. But by God allowing her to get this frustration with him and this anger with him, to see what was really in her heart, that helped her. And I believe, as Jesus will say later, those who are forgiven much will love much. You know, sometimes it's hard if you grow up in a a good home, a self-righteous, or even a Christian home, it's sometimes hard to see the depth of your sin. But for those who've come from these, these depths of deep sin, and here even Anne, who has a self-righteous, outwardly good kind of person, by God, God, by allowing her to wrestle with this and to see the anger that she has towards him, helps her to realize that, that she's truly deeply sinful right from the, the core of her being. And I believe that she's going to need this as she goes into the mission field. 
as she needs something to keep her going. If she'd had, like, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm a sinner, God saved me, and, and, and that could all be well and good. But when she's had this true understanding of who she was before God, and God truly brings her out of that, that's going to be something I believe that God's going to use as, as life gets really, really hard in the years to come. Um, she says, I thought it was unjust in him not to notice my prayers and my repentance. I could not tolerate the thought that he was a sovereign God and had a right to call one person while he left another one to perish. Rather than seeing that he was merciful in saving even one person, I thought it was cruel for him to send any of his creatures to hell for their disobedience. But my main distress came from a view of his perfect purity and holiness. My heart was filled with aversion and hatred towards a holy God, and I felt that if he let me into heaven with the feelings I had at that time, I would be as miserable there as if I were in hell. Um, she was coming to see how holy God is, and if you have any sin in your heart, you don't want to be around the holy God, and she didn't like the thought of that. She said, in this state, I longed to be annihilated. If I could have destroyed the existence of my soul as easily as I could have destroyed my body, I would have quickly done so. And this is where she is. But then God in his mercy sends the light. God started to help her see things differently. She said, but that glorious being who is kinder to his creatures than they are to themselves did not allow me to remain in this state for long. I began to discover beauty in the salvation that comes through Christ. He appeared to be just the kind of savior that I needed. I saw how God could be just in saving sinners through him. And she begins to see God's justice as a display for his hatred of sin and how much he desires good for his creatures. I hate sin so much I'm going to judge it because sin is not good for you and I want to stop you from sin. So I, I hate sin, God says, because it's not good. It, it, it violates my law, but it's also not good for you. And she begins to see this. And she just, all of a sudden, scriptures become sweet to her. She just wants to spend time in, in the word. And all her friends said, you know, if Anne showed up, she would talk to you for hours. And all she would talk about is redeeming love. That was, that was her, like, single theme that she wanted to talk about. She started to read, shortly thereafter, a book by Jonathan Edwards called A History of Redemption. It's a wonderful book uh, where he traces how God has, since creation, has been laying the groundwork for Christ to come. And then when Christ came, everything fit together for the prophecies, everything pointed to Christ. And ever since then, Jonathan Edwards kind of picks up the narrative from Acts takes us through the New Testament and just continues on with church history. And he even says in the 1750s, before there's any missionaries in Africa, he said someday, with, with, with Ms. Kermaza here, it really hits me, he said someday, I forget, a paraphrase this, he said, you know, theologians are going to be coming from Ethiopia. You know, Ethiopia was not even a blip on any missionary's map in the 1730s when Jonathan Edwards is writing this. And yet his confidence in the gospel's expansion pushes him to write this, and this book has a profound effect on some of these early missionaries, this, this triumph of the gospel. And this is what gets them out to the mission field. So she, she, she suddenly has a new perspective on school. Like, I need to, I, I, she'd like to be a missionary, but as a single girl in the 1820s, it's not likely she's going to be going anywhere. She said, but I can teach, and I have people who need to be taught, so I'm going to really focus in on my studies now so I can become a good teacher. And this is what she does after she gets out of school. And um, you can go to slide four, the next slide. Um, this is what she does when she gets out of school, and she's a, a teacher for several years out of, after she graduates. In June of 1810, she's 21. Um, Joe, who talked about Adoniram last week, Adoniram happens to visit Bradford because there's a convention in town for some pastors, and Adoniram and his friends are desperate to get to the mission field, and they need to meet with these, these ministers so that they can say, would you please start a mission society? We want to go as missionaries, and there's no society to send us. And so they come to Bradford to appeal to the, mission, the ministers to get this society started. And in the process of doing that, this is when Adam Ironman and Anne meet. 
And her, now, now missions can, becomes an actual possibility in her life. Um, because, but she has to wrestle with it. It's a long time of wrestling. She knows what this will take. She knows this is probably a one-way trip. This is like a, a trip to Mars, you know, when I'm not coming back, basically. And so she, she wants to serve the Lord. She wants to bring the gospel where there is no gospel, but she knows it's going to be really tough. And she really has to, and this is not an easy, like, oh, yeah, I'm a missionary. This is a, an intense time of wrestling. Uh, so, uh, but the, the, her first biographer talks about how God had prepared her for this. She had a love of, for adventure. Uh, she had a good education, she was determined, and she had a close walk with God. Um, in October 20th, 1810, a few days uh, before October 20th, she goes and talks to her friend Harriet of her decision. And she says, you know, Harriet, I've been wrestling with this. I- I've really I'm decided, God, I- I'm going to go with Adoniram. We're going to go into the mission field. And her friend Harriet writes and said, you know, I, she was really convicted about this herself. She said, I felt more for the salvation of the heathen this day than I recollect to have ever felt through my whole life because of what Anne has just shared with me. And Harriet writes, great God, direct me. Oh, make me in some way beneficial to their immortal souls. Well, three days later, Harriet meets Samuel Newell, one of Adoniram's friends. And in, in the spring, Harriet has her own existential crisis, and she's going to decide if she's going to go overseas with Samuel and with Harriet, uh, with Anne and with Adoniram. And so Harriet, a year later, October 1811, she's 18 years old, and she resolves to marry Samuel and go off with Adoniram and Anne to the field. As Joe mentioned, um, Adoniram couldn't get immediate. He was impatient. He wanted to get to the field. And so he sails to London. He gets, he gets the okay from the London Missionary Society to send them. So he comes back to America, and he tells these ministers, and he said, look, I want to go. London's willing to send me. What are you going to do? And they're hesitant. They said, well, we're probably going to be at war soon. Uh, there's really no, this isn't practical. We're not ready. We just started. We don't have funding. But they're not going to say, well, we're not, they're not going to let an English, <laughs> because of the nature of things, they're not going to let an English mission board send an American missionary overseas. Uh, well, we'll get our act together and we'll send you. And so that's October of 1811, uh, and that is the fall then. So Anne and Harriet, you know, Anne's 23, Harriet's 18. Now Anne doesn't have to go alone. She's got a friend to go, and a childhood friend, and they're both going to go as missionaries. So they've got this last beautiful, perhaps, New England fall together, preparing to sail, and um, the next slide. Um, they're so anxious to go that, you know, I guess, I don't know why this is, but they leave Massachusetts in the middle of February and sail for, for Burma and India. So I can imagine, you know what Massachusetts winters are like, especially on the coast. Um, Anne and Harriet are both within two weeks of being married. And just think, uh, and I, I like to picture, their emotions are probably like the, sh- the waves underneath the ship. What that's like to just the, the, the trauma of leaving home of being newly married, of never coming back probably, and then setting sail on a four-month trip overseas. They board the, this is a painting from that time period of the caravan, the name of the ship, and they set sail. Anne says, I'd so long anticipated the trying scene of parting that I found it was more tolerable than I'd feared. But she says, still my heart bleeds. Oh, America, my native land, must I leave thee? But she does. It's a four-month honeymoon cruise. Uh, She's first four days First four days, she's in bed seasick. Um, very limited and cramped space. They all get sick from lack of health or lack of exercise. Someone decides, let's, let's start a practice of jumping the rope. That's how they refer to it. So they all start jumping the rope. I'm assuming something like <laughs> jump rope today. And in that, doing that, they get some exercise and they get some of their health back. So uh, they took 20 rough, rainy days around the tip of Africa. After 112 days at sea, they sight land in the Bay of Bengal, which is the western uh, or the, the eastern side of India. And uh, they sailed to the top of the Bay of Bengal. You can go to slide six. Um, 
So this is two weeks of marriage. She spends 17 months without a home. And each one of these areas is a different uh, trip that she has to take as they try to find a place to settle. Um, William Carey, between India and, um, well, kind of where the red tip is. That's where their first destination is. That's where William Carey's already there with a the mission. So they have some English speakers, some Christians to meet them. They go and meet him, but within 10 days, uh, Anne is shocked by the idol worship, by the Europeans, how the, how the Europeans treated the Indians. They were like treating them like animals, she said. But after 10 days, remember, they just traveled four months to get here. After 10 days, the East Indian Company and the English government says, go back to America. We don't want you here. Well, obviously, they're not going to do that. Burma, is, which was where they were supposed to be going, is, Burma is very violent. The English had tried to start a mission there, and they'd failed multiple times. They just couldn't get anything going, and it didn't seem like Burma was the best, best option. So they didn't, like, well, we can't stay in India. We're definitely not going back to America. What are, what's our choice? So they decide to sail down to the Isle of France, which is today called Mauritius, which is this little yellow, you can't even see it, it's so tiny. It's, it's smaller than York County. It's a little island smaller than York County. It's this, where this yellow, this, this yellow um, uh, arrow points to. Well, they can't all sail. There's only two open spots on the ship, so they can't sail together. So Samuel and Harriet sail first. Harriet's pregnant and, you know, 18, pregnant and, you know, a long way from home. And so they sail first. Their ship's derailed, or not derailed, but their ship is so leaky it has to put in the port, and it delays their trip. And so they, but they, they leave four months ahead of, of, Harry, of uh, Anne and Adoniram. In this time period, Anne and Adoniram go through this crisis because they were Congregationalists. And if we're Congregationalists, you may have heard that term. Congregationalists is sort of a middle ground between a Presbyterian and a Baptist. So they would baptize children and not, you know, uh, they would baptize babies to be paid a Baptist. Uh, but they're going to have a church government similar to a Baptist church. They're not going to have a, 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 like a, what's the word? Not a session, but the, the next one up. Um, where the, the, there's a hierarchy among Presbyterian churches where you have a, a, a the local churches are not just in, they, anyway, I'll explain another time. I forget the term. The, 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 the session, I think, is the local group of, the, of the, the, the elders, but there's something above that. Presbytery, thank you. There we go. I, I knew. How, how obvious could that be? Um, the Congregationalists are just basically have an autonomous local church. So, so they're kind of in the middle. So this is a real trial because Anne and Adoniram are Congregationalists. They believe they have a different view of Baptists, baptism than the Baptists do, and they know they're going to be working, they anticipate working with William Carey. So Adoniram's got to beef up on his views of baptism so he can defend his viewpoint against William Carey, not because of a theological argument, but because they're going to be rubbing shoulders with Baptists, and they've got to deal with it. Well, in the process of trying to prove his, his own viewpoint, he comes to the conviction that the Baptists are right. And this is a real trial for them because if they switch their view of baptism, they're not going to be supported by the Congregationalist Minister, uh, the, the board that sent them out. It's not going to be really uh, encouraging of that. So Anne sensed the, 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 the consequences of this even more. Well, it, it really affected her. And I, I think this shows you something about Anne's spirit, which kind of makes me smile. Um, it says an uncharacteristic way that she responded. She studied the same verses and books and doctrine that he did, but she always took the opposing side, even when he started to have convictions about baptism, and she started to have doubts about her own view herself. And she said, I tried to have him give it up and rest in his old views, and frequently told him, if he became a Baptist, I would not. Um, so, you know, th- this is a, a thorny subject, and this is not a light subject, and people have strong convictions, and we, re- we respect that. 
But for them, making the switch was consequential because to do so, it cost them their support back at home. And eventually the Baptists rose to the occasion and they took on their support. But this is what's going on in, in there. I, I share that because I, I think it says something about Anne's character. Eventually she's, she, she, she went with where she felt her conscience was taking her. But I like the fact that she said, you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep my own convictions. I'm not going to be swayed just because my husband becomes a Baptist. I'm not. But eventually she does. In any case. So slide seven, we can go to that now. Uh, so this is their trip. I mean, they've already gone all the way up to where the blue airline starts. And now they've got to backtrack almost 4,000 miles to get back to the Isle of France because the India, India government didn't want them there. So they, they sail here another two months at sea. And so she's, she's eager, you know, to see Harriet again and to, uh, to renew their re- friendship and their connection while she gets into port and realizes that Harriet had died in November. Um, and this just devastates her because uh, Harriet was expecting. She got uh, dysentery, just terrible bowel problem, which was very common back then, on the ship. And then she got in, and then they got, because of the delay, they didn't get into port in time, and they got caught in a storm, and the baby was born, and then died of exposure, and then Harriet ended up getting tuberculosis and dying as well. So, you know, Harriet had died even before Anne and Adoniram had even left from, uh, from India. And this whole time of expectation of seeing her friend, her childhood friend, her, you know, her, her sister in arms, she gets there to find out that Harriet has died. And I just want to pause here because, you know, life is not easy. And when you're trying to serve the Lord, you think that God will pave the way for you. And it just seems like God just sends obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, especially in, the, in, in Ad, Anne and Adoniram's life. It's a terribly, from a human perspective, it's a terribly inefficient way to get things done. This is not how you get the, the, the gospel to the Burmese people. By, you know, 4,000 mile roundabouts, by loss of dear, her only English-speaking Christian friend. Her, and, I mean, there's a lot of guy missionaries, that, but there's not a whole lot of girl uh, comforters and friends that Anne has. And so she gets there. And, and finds out that, that, Aunt, that Harriet has died. After a week in Mauritius, or the Isle of France, she said, it seems as if there is no resting place for me on earth. When shall I find some little spot that I can call my home while in this world? So they spent about four months here in the Isle of France, and they like, well, we can't stay here. We've got to find some place to settle. They decide they're going to go to Malaysia, to a, a, a town, a play area called Penang in Malaysia, but to do that, the only way to get there is to go back, all the way back up to, you see where the word is, Chennai, up there by the Bay of Bengal. They've got to sail from there all the way back up to India to get a ship to go back to, to Malaysia. Again, God does not seem to be efficient when he's trying to get work done. But this is the way he works. And it's hard for us to translate that into our lives because we get frustrated. And we get, like, why is this taking so long? Why does this obstacle, I'm just trying to serve you, Lord. Why do you keep throwing this in my life? And we can't answer those questions, but we can know. And if you, ta- if you read her writings, uh, she, she, wrote, she kept a journal for about four years, and the rest of them were lost. But she, you can see her wrestling with this. I'll reference that at the end. But I want you to know that this, this, is, if we t- this is one thing we can take away from this, is that God is not efficient. He's got his purposes. And we can take, if we can't find comfort in that, we can at least find the sense that we're not alone in the discouragement that comes from, why does this have to happen this way when we're just trying to get the gospel out? Why these hurdles? I mean, and I can't talk about how many times they got sick and they had stomach problems and they were in fever and usually one was sick and the other one wasn't. Sometimes they're both sick and there's nobody to care for them. But 
again, God is in charge. And so they get to Madras, they get to this area in western India, eastern India, and then they find out that um, they, they don't want to stay, they decide to, um, they can't stay in India for long, because now England and America are at war. They're afraid if they stay in India for long that the English will just kind of take them back as prisoners of war to England instead of letting them go on. So they, the only ship they can find in Madras is going to Burma. And I really see this as a Paul and Troas. You know, God says, no, 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 I'm going to close every other door. I want you to go to Burma. And so they get that. And they decide to go to Burma. She says, God, where do you want us to go? And as they approach and they consider going to Burma, where they know the English missions have failed and things don't seem very safe or comfortable, she says, we can't expect to do much in such a rough, uncultivated field. But if we can be instrumental in removing some of the rubbish and preparing the way for others, it will be a sufficient reward. So, you know, if you've ever seen a property that's kind of overgrown or if you want to put a garden in where there was a woods, you know, there's a, there's a lot of land clearing that has to happen before you can put the seeds in. And so Anna Adenarum said, well, if the best we can do is just get here and get the ground ready for the next generation of missionaries that comes in, we'll, we'll take that. And that's what keeps them going. Um, so it's a terrible voyage, but eventually they make it to Burma. You can go to the next slide, number 10 there. Uh, a little bit on the Burmese culture. Uh, Burma is kind of a blend of India and China, so you get influences from both countries. It's primarily Buddhist, and um, the king there is the absolute sovereign. Idolatry and temples everywhere. For them, it must have felt like living in Old Testament times. We live in a pluralistic age. We're used to living around Buddhists or to around these different Hindus. And while we need to be Christian, we need to be loving towards people. We do get kind of used to seeing those kinds of things. And we're not shocked when we see idols. And we're not shocked when we see, you know, symbols and various other things. And we've been taught, it's, you know, there's a the sense in which we need to be tolerant as Christians, tolerant of other people, but intolerant towards their religion. And, and for Anne and Adoniram stepping on shore here, it was hitting them in the face. The absolute idolatry, the wicked practices, the bizarre st- things uh, that, were, that were happening. Um, that uh, were, I'm sure were quite shocking, having never you know, watched any National Geographic or Discovery Channel or anything like this. To see things you'd read about in the Old Testament you thought were dead and gone, alive and well in this land of, 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 of Burma. Uh, so they get there in 1813. Go to the next, okay, sorry, yeah. So this is, um, I, I got my, ahead of myself. This is what Anne writes. Uh, this one paragraph catches me when she heard about Harriet. And I've modernized this a little bit. But she says, O death, you destroyer of domestic felicity. Wasn't this world big enough to find victims for you, basically, that you didn't have to go into the family where there's just a few of us? Why, you, you could have gone anywhere to take a victim. Why did you have to come here? And, and so she processes this. So go ahead and a couple more. Okay, this is Burma here, just to get your geographical reference. And I, help, I find that maps, they can be boring, but they can also really ground us in what's really going on. So there's Burma. Uh, they're going to spend most of their time on the left side, the western coast of Burma is where they're going to be. Go, go ahead. Okay, so this is the language that, that Adoniram has to learn. They call this the round O language for, <laughs> for us, for we um, English speakers. It's, you can tell it looks very confusing because it all looks the same. It looks like little doodles while you're writing on the, tele- on the telephone. Um, they don't have a grammar. They've got, they find a Burmese man to he- teach them, but he speaks no English. So imagine trying to learn Spanish from somebody that didn't speak, doesn't speak English. So it's a lot of, like, you know, you point, and he tells you the word. And then you point at your whatever, and he tells you the word. And that's how you learn a language. We don't know it. You have no common language in between. So she, because she wants him to be able to uh, admire him, because he believes he can't start preaching until he gets some scripture translated. He needs to have something 
translate it into Burmese before he can um, do some preaching. And he expects that to be three or four years of, of work. And she wants to help him get as up to speed as possible on the language. So she says, I'll take over the management of the home. You spend yourself. So he spends 12 hours a day studying Burmese. Ironically, she picks up the language faster because she's interacting with servants and different people. She, he gets better with the grammar, which is necessary. He's going to translate. But she picks up the language faster because she's actually interacting with Burmese throughout the day in conversation. And, uh, but still, there's lots of times of discouragement. Their, their, main, their main town is the town of Rangoon, which is 30 miles up from the coast. It's a city larger than Boston at the time. No evangelical presence. There's some Portuguese churches. There's some Catholic churches. But there's no evangelical practices or, or uh, churches there. Uh, and she says there's nobody to pr- The only person she has to talk to and pray with is Adoniram. And that's not a bad thing if it's your husband, but it's still, as we know, friends are good things and other believers. And she hopes to reach out to some of the ladies in town, get to know them. And she says, oh, if it may please the dear Redeemer to make me instrumental in leading some of the females of Burma to a saving acquaintance with him, then my great object will be accomplished. My highest desire is gratified. I will rejoice, if that's the case, to have given up my comforts, my country, and my home. She gets to know the viceroy. The viceroy is the regional leader. Uh, and again, I, I appreciate her wisdom here. She, she wants to get to know the viceroy's wife. She said, there may come a point in time when we need help from the local authorities. And maybe Adnarum, he's going to have a relationship with the viceroy. Maybe for whatever reason, he can't go see the viceroy. I'm going to build a relationship with his wife so that um, I'll have an ally if I ever need help. And she goes to the house and she finds the lady smoking a long silver pipe, which I'm sure was a, probably a bit shocking to her as well. Um, but she makes friends with the, with the, 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 the wife there. Uh, now the next slide, is that 11? Okay, you, you, can, you can stay there for now. We're not quite there, but I'll just leave it there. Um, their original town, the mission that was there existing that the English had started that had failed, was kind of off the beaten track. So they didn't, get a lot of, they didn't get a lot of visitors, and they realized that wasn't the best place. It wasn't the safest place to be. It was also not the best place. If you want to have, reach a lot of people, you need to be where the people are. So they move into town in 1815 to be closer to these opportunities. And um, uh, one blessing comes to their life in September of 1815. Their little boy is born. George, uh, Joe mentioned that last week. Uh, they actually name him Roger Williams, which, you know, he's a founding Baptist in America. So obviously the Baptist mentality or thinking had become important to them. And it's the first family they've seen in over three years as this little boy. And she writes to her mother. She says, our prayer is that his life may be preserved and his heart sanctified that he may become a missionary among the Burmans. But little Roger died eight months later of a fever in May of 1816. And again, you know, he's got a fever, he's coughing, he's hardly, she can hear him gasping for breath, and there's no doctor. There's a Portuguese priest, she calls him for help, and he brings some rhubarb and some gas coins powder, which is a, who knows what's in that mix. It was a common uh, medicine of the day, but it, it didn't help the baby, and he died. And she writes, thus died our little Roger. But even in that, you know, I, I think one thing that these former generations were good at, they were always seeking, like, what does God want me to learn in this situation? I don't want to just mourn and move on. I want to know, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? And she said, what, what, how are we supposed to improve this heavy affliction? And she started to feel like, you know, maybe we were putting our comfort in the fact that we had our little boy, and, we weren't, and that was taking our attention and focus off of, of God. And it may have been that, that God was trying to force us to rely completely and solely on him. But 
And she writes, she said, all around us is Egyptian darkness, not a glimpse of light. And you know how black it was during the plagues of Egypt. And she said, that's what it's like, feels like right here. It's all Egyptian darkness around us, not a, a, a ray of light. Um, jumping ahead a few years. And in December of 1817, Adoniram himself now is, is feeling very sick, and he needs to travel. Um, and he's hoping that by traveling, they live in Rangoon, which is the pinkish red dot there at the bottom of the, 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 the screen, the center of the screen. If you go up, there's a yellow pin there, uh, kind of at the top of the Bay of Bengal. That's a place called Chittagong, and there are some Burmese Christians up there. Adoniram's going to travel up there, hoping that his health will improve and hoping to bring back an English-speaking Burmese who can help him with the language. So he expects to be gone three months. He gets on, he gets on his ship and he travels north, except they get blown off course and there's a problem. He ends up going 1,000 miles west over to this area of Madras again on the western, eastern side of India. So obviously he's gone for more than three months. Just as she's expecting him back three months later, somebody comes back from Chittagong and says, oh, Adoniram never made it to Chittagong. And so now you can imagine, no communication, what are you, what are you thinking? You know, what? He never made it. You've been, it's been three months and he's never made it. I'm expecting him back and he didn't even make it. And so for five months, she won't know if he's dead or alive. And he's frustrated again. Like, God, I'm, I'm trying to go get a helper and you send me back to the east coast of India. Not only does he make it, he, he ends up 300 miles from his destination. He's got to travel 300 miles by land to get back to Madras to get a ship to go back to Burma. Um, and very, very discouraging and frustrating. By then, war is threatening between England and Burma. And the tensions are rising. And, of course, the Burmese, you know, Adoniram and Anne could be English for all the Burmese care. They're whites. They speak English. And that's good enough to make them English and make them an enemy. And so <clears throat> George, one of the fellow missionaries, is called to the courthouse. He's interrogated for hours. And she can't get through to the viceroy. Adoniram's gone. And so, like Esther, it's not appropriate for her to go to the Viceroy's house when the Viceroy's family's away uh, as a single lady. And in that culture, it was inappropriate. But she said, you know what, I'm going to be like Esther, and I'm going to go. And she did, and the Viceroy freed George. But in this process of things that are going on, George comes back. He's freed. It's early July. The ships, English ships are starting to leave the harbor, and Georgia says, you know, Anne, we've got to get out of here because there may not be any ships left. We may, not have, we may not have the option of getting out of here if we don't leave now. And she really doesn't want to leave. Her baby's buried here. She's not sure if Adoniram's coming back. This is where her heart is. This is where she's prayed to stay. She wants to stay in Burma. But when there's one ship left in the harbor, she says, if there's any hope of him coming back, I'd stay, but I think he's dead and gone, so I'm not, I'm not going to stay. So she gets on the ship. All The whole time, they got 30 miles to travel down the river to get out to the sea. And the whole time, she's thinking, I don't want to be here. I, I want to stay. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. Just as they approach the coast, the captain of the ship says, the cargo wasn't loaded right. We're going to have to stop for a few days and resort the cargo. And she said, you know, even if I go back alone, I'm going back to the mission house. I, I'm, I'm whatever. And uh, so George and his wife, they continue on to India. Anne goes back to the mission house. And like three days later, Adoniram shows up. And, you know, she kept the mission alive while he was gone. And, you know, if it hadn't been for that incompetent guy loading the cargo, she would have sailed to India, and they would have been ships passing in the night, and Adoniram would have been like, where's Anne? Um, but in God's providence, he, he allows it to continue on. Um, so uh, you can go to the next uh, slide there. 
So this is a Burmese Zayat. This is where the Burmese would often meet for their religious worship or philosophical conversations and things like this. And, and, and Adoniram says, you know, this is an, these are important things in Burma, so we're going to build one of these things, and I'm going to preach the gospel on one of these things. This is a challenge, though, because by now he's prepared to, he's got the language down well enough to do this. Up to this point, it's been low-key missions because they're just in town, they're talking to people here and there, they're building relationships. But now they're going to be actively preaching church services, trying to win over the Burmese. And they know this is a kind of a line in the sand because at this point in time, they may make enemies of the same people who'd been their friends at this point because they're now going to be actively trying to convert the Burmese. So this is a notable time, and this, this, uh, this is 1819 when they opened this, this Zayat. As Joe mentioned, they do get some, eventually finally get some, uh, some encouragements with some converts. But in 1821, Anne has, her health is so bad that she's got to sail for help. And she can't take, Adoniram can't go with her. He's got to stay at the mission. This will turn out to be a two and a half year departure. She's going to be gone for two and a half years since she's trying to find health. So I, I got I just, you're, just the, they, they had one, child, one son who died. And now Anne's going to be gone for who knows how long, if she'll ever come back. Adoniram's got to continue on alone in the mission, you know, not having any idea that it's going to be two and a half years before she returns. She sails to India by herself, and then she's given, helped with some passage, and she's encouraged to go to England. She travels to England. While she's in England, she meets some prominent missionaries there, and the messages, she makes some connections there, which are helpful. She sails to New York, and she able, unlike, un, 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 Different than she expected, she's able to see her parents again. And this is, that was not her final departure when she left as a two-week-old bride. But while she's there in America for several, several months and about a year, um, she, she goes to, to Massachusetts at first, but she finds that the climate up there is not great for her health. And she's mobbed by people who want to hear stories about Burma. Uh, Adnarm's brother is a, uh, is a doctor down in Baltimore, so she spends the winter in Baltimore and while she's down there, she writes a history of the Burmese mission. And that exists today. That's, that's one of the most important resources we have for knowing what happened in Adoniram's life. So God used this just like he used an interruption in Paul's life in prison. We wouldn't have the epistles if Paul hadn't been in prison. If Paul hadn't been separated from the churches, we wouldn't have the New Testament. So these times of separation are trying at the time, but they become a blessing to future generations because they give opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be there. So then in 1823, she, she leaves for Burma again. She arrives in the winter of December of 1823. Beginning of 1824, England and Burma are, are actually at war now, and the English invade at the coast of Rangoon. But by now, uh, the Judsons have moved up to the capital of Ava, which is up in the central part of the country. But because there's war happening down at the coast, but because the English are gaining ground, Anybody who's near the capital who's, not, who's European is, is in threat. And they actually said, like, go around town and arrest anybody that wears a hat. So it's a distinctive feature uh, for Westerners. So for two years, Adnarm's going to spend most of that time in prison. He's going to get arrested. Terrible. You can flip to the next. Uh, yeah. So he described how he was kind of strung up. So they would spend, you know, this is, this is the easy part of his time in prison. Um, just horrible conditions, unsanitary, completely vile, and filthy. They called it, um, I forget the name of the, um, just, just, a, just a horrible time and experience. Anne will come to visit him 
and he feels terrible for her having to go through the streets and kind of get poked at and pushed at. And she's bringing, by now they do have a second child, Maria, who is um, there. And she has to bring her baby to there to bring food, sometimes bribing the guard to try to get food into Adoniram. Um, so to, to, to summarize that, eventually uh, the English are victorious. Adoniram is spared. He's freed in the beginning of 1824. So things are finally settling down again. I'm sorry, he's, this, the, the, he's arrested in 1824. It's 1826 that he's, um, he's, he's freed. Where are we at with the next slide? Okay, this is her visiting some of the, the her, him in prison. Okay, go ahead, next one. Um, so he's freed from prison in the spring, and then Anne survives until October. So just when it looks like life's going to settle down, we can finally get on with the mission again, she gets really sick. And again, in... <clears throat> just the hardship that people endure. This happens when Adoniram and Anne are separated. He, he hasn't seen her for two months, and he gets a letter. Um, this is really, really hard. Uh, he gets a letter with a black seal and the news that his baby had died. Now, he said, I don't know, as he's writing, he says, I don't know if that was to soften the blow for what really had happened or whether the person was confused. So he opens the letter thinking he's going to read about his baby dying instead of reading, reading that his baby survived but his wife has died. And just a really hard time of, for Adnam to process this. This is Anne's grave here to, the, to this day in, in Burma. Um, Adnam talks about going back and visiting the house where they had lived. He writes to Anne's mother. He said, I'm now sitting in the house that we built in the room where she died. I'm under the window from which I can see the tree that stands over her grave. When I went back to the house, I almost hoped to see my love returning to greet me. And he says, I, I stood there where we, we gave our parting kiss. And, you know, we can somehow think that people back then, they were just stiffer and they were, you know, tougher. And uh, you know, he's a missionary. He's tough, right? You know, but that, that, we, we can't dehumanize the, the human element from these, these missionaries just because they're from a, from a former generation. They, they loved. They, they cared for each other. They were separated for years at a time. But that doesn't mean that they were somehow stoic. They weren't Spock. The kids have been watching Star Trek lately. They're not the emotionalist Spock people. They are human beings with deep emotional um, feelings. And when he reaches out to his little baby Maria, she's like his only family member left, she turns away because she doesn't recognize him. She just you know, hasn't seen her dad in so long. And he said, I went down to her grave to find comfort. He said, but whoever, whoever found comfort at a grave? But it's interesting, as he tried to find information from anybody who was with Anne when she died, you know, you know what, what, was she, what was she saying and what was she, what were we thinking, what was in her mind when she was delirious the last couple of days. But it's interesting that she died with one last exclamation in the Burmese language. So that Anne, who grew up English, or grew up American, speaking English, it's interesting that by the time she died, the last thing she said was in Burmese. It just shows how much she had invested her life in these people. You can go to the next slide there. Um, this is a, a stone that the um, missionaries, after Adoniram's time, this is a replica of the stone, the, they built a memorial stone to Adoniram into, into his ministry there. Well, in more recent years, the Burmese government, now called Myanmar by the military uh, dictatorship that runs the country, they said, well, we don't need memorials to English Baptists or American Baptists in our country. So they, they were going to, like, move the stone, but they found it was too big, so they just buried the stone. So you can go stand above where the stone is today, but in the museum there, they've got a replica of this stone trying to, to erase the memory. The next slide there. Um, 
this is an interesting, Adoniram will marry two more times. Uh, he marries a lady named Sarah, who Anne had actually met uh, on her last visit to America. And then when Sarah dies, uh, Adoniram will hire Emily to write Aunt Sarah's biography and ends up marrying Emily. Um, but just, just look at the, the, co- the human cost. There are four pins here on the map, and this is Adoniram and his three wives and where they're buried. Um, Adoniram was buried, died at sea. He's buried in the Bay of Bengal somewhere. Anne's buried in Burma. Um, Sarah's buried on St. Helena where Napoleon was in exile. They were trying to get back to America for her health, and she died off the coast of St. Helena. She's buried there. Emily outlived Adoniram, and she's buried up in New York. I want to close with these words uh, from Anne as she's writing to Samuel, Harriet's husband, of, uh, after the death of Harriet. And she reflects back on her childhood and then her, the early days of the mission. Just this last paragraph as we close. She said, I received your letter recently. It brought fresh to my mind a recollection of scenes formerly enjoyed in our dear native country. Well do I remember our first interesting conversations on missions and on the probable events that awaited us in India. Those were happy days. Newell and Judson, Harriet and Anne, then were united in the closest friendship. We anticipated spending our lives together and sharing the trials and toils, the pleasures and enjoyments of a missionary life. But look at us now. In the Isle of France, solitary and alone, lies all that was once visible of the lovely Harriet. You, my brother, Newell, uh, brother in Christ, a melancholy wanderer in the island of Ceylon. And the savage heathen empire of Burma is destined to be the future residence of Judson and Anne. But is this separation to be forever? Shall we four never again enjoy social happy times together? Yes, my dear brother, our separation is of a short duration. There is a rest, a peaceful, happy rest, where Jesus reigns, where we four shall soon meet to part no more. So it, it cost a lot, and the, we are snowflakes. Uh, let me remind us all of that. Um, but there is still a world to be reached. They had confidence that the gospel would go out, and it's still going out. And we can be thankful that in spite of these dark days, Christ is still building his church. Um, if you just want to go to the last slide, I mentioned some resources. Um, the center, you can get on Google Books or archive.org for free. It's, it's, um, it's a memoir of Ann Judson. You can find a lot of her writings in there. She, she's, I've quoted from a lot. She's got a lot more in there. It's very, very engaging reading. You know, 18th century, it's not that hard. Just work through it. It's, it's not like reading the Puritans, believe me. Um, on the left is a modern biography of her that includes some of her writings. And then on the right, I have a website that I started writing about Anne. I didn't go all the way through her life, but some of her quotes, you can just, it's to a generationscom not, It's not a, <laughs> nothing for sale here, just a resource. Um, to a generationscom you can read about some of the things that I've written about Anne. So let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at the life of a sister in Christ and the sacrifices that she made. Ultimately, we see your hand guiding her in her early life through her days of pleasure and joy as a child, her days of conviction, and how you led her to salvation, and then you pressed her to, to serve, your, serve you in Burma. Um, we're thankful that the, the gospel does continue to go on in Burma, even in modern days, and there are churches today that are still using Adoniram's Bible translation, still singing hymns that he wrote, And um, we know that all the labor that we do for you is not lost. And even if we are buried in the middle of the ocean or are buried continents away from our spouse, that there is a resurrection that's coming and that no sacrifice we make now uh, is going to be forgotten by you. And so we're thankful for your kindness. And we pray that this could encourage us and inspire us to serve you with the rest of our lives, whether they're 37 like Anne's or much longer. So we ask this in your name. Amen.